Thank you, John. Looking up at the clock, noticed uh, it's the right time for Nova Scotia. A little early. That reminds me of a story about uh, Premier Chernenko, Soviet Union, a few years ago when uh, he called in the head of the KGB one day and said, uh, we've got to get rid of these time zones in this country. We have five time zones, and it's very confusing, and we've got to abolish it and put everybody on the same time in the entire country. And head of the KGB said, well, what are you... What's the problem? He says, well, for instance, last week I called on to New Delhi to express my condolences on the assassination of Indira Gandhi, and I was a day late. And today I called Rome to express my condolences on the assassination of the Pope, and I was a day early. My uh, opening line in the Nally clergy malpractice case in speaking to a jury, and this case, of course, involved the tragic suicide of a dear friend of John's and myself, Ken Nally. I stated after I was following after the opening statement of the plaintiff's lawyer, he spent 45 minutes boring us to tears, and I stood up and I said, lawyers have been called unpopular wind instruments, and you're about to hear another one. And uh, I hope that as I speak, you'll pay some attention. There's a woman who had a, had hired a lawyer in an automobile accident case, and the trial started, and the defense lawyers, two of them representing the insurance company, were very, very smooth. They were very effective, and after three days of trial, this lady knew she was on the short end of the stick in terms of the talent, and she finally leans over to her lawyer, and she says, uh, don't you think you should get some help? And he said, why do you say that? He said, well, I noticed that with the other lawyers, when one of them is speaking, the other one's thinking, but when you're speaking, no one seems to be thinking. <laughs> and so today, as I'm speaking, I hope you'll pay attention and think. Because the issues that I'm going to be dealing with is that of a perspective on the sovereignty of God in religion. And the way I'm going to define religion is the freedom to live out your faith. See, everybody has a religion. There are no people without a religion. Everybody is living out their faith, whatever that might be. And as we'll see, as we saw yesterday, God is sovereign not only in law, but also in the area of religion. A footnote to yesterday's comments, I mentioned Steve Gelback, who came on and worked for us for about a year as our director of research and then went on to the White House. Steve is currently Attorney General Ed Meese's senior special assistant, his right-hand man. I mentioned Lowell Sturgill yesterday, who came in and wrote the memorandum that became the Equal Access Act just out of law school. On February 1st of this month, Lowell started as the key attorney in the Department of Justice legal policy section, and his first assignment was to draft for the Attorney General of the United States his view of what the religious freedom issues ought to be and the one the stance that the U.S. government ought to take on these issues. I mentioned another fellow, Mike Polson, who graduated from Yale Law School, top of his class last year, and Yale Divinity School, an evangelical that made it through that institution unscathed and even stronger than when he went in. Mike worked for us for six months, 
paid him 500 a month. He refused to take any more. He is now in the Department of Justice in a key position as of January 1, serving the Lord in an effective way. The Lord has his key people. The Lord's never operated with the masses. He's always operated with faithful men and women doing what they ought to be doing, which is integrating this book in a practical way. My greatest concern for Bible colleges and Bible universities and Christian colleges and Christian universities, for Bible teaching churches, whether they be my own Emmanuel Bible Church or for Grace Community Church, is what I'd refer to as academic spirituality. Academic spirituality is when you take this book and you learn it from cover to cover, but you never apply it. That's a tragedy that we see so often. So what we want to address this morning is some practical application as we see how God is sovereign in the area of religion, in the area of living out our faith and the freedoms that we enjoy. And I'd like to put it in the context of a story that we all know so well. It's in Mark 6. If I were to mention to you a story about a boy's lunch, you would immediately think of five loaves and two fishes. And if I were to ask you how many were fed, you would immediately say 5,000 men. In addition, of course, perhaps another 5,000 women and perhaps a couple thousand children. So we've got perhaps 12,000 people fed in this miracle of miracles. In Mark 6, one of the problems with, with well-known incidents that we see in Scripture is that they're so well-known that we think we know it all. So we never really bother to go back and dig in and dig deeper to see if perhaps there's something we've missed the first few times through. Let's start in verse 30 of Mark 6. It says, And the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. And the people saw them going, and many recognized them, and they ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And disembarking... He saw a great multitude, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it was already quite late, his disciples came up to him and began saying, The place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away, so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered and said to them, and this is a command, you give them something to eat. And their response, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? Now, you and I don't spend denarii, so we really don't relate to that. What's 200 denarii? 200 clams? No, 200 denarii is 200 days of wages. In the American society in 1985, it's $20,000. It costs about a $1.80 a head to feed people at McDavid's in those days, to give them a bagel and uh, whatever else. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And I suspect they might have been smiling. He commanded them all to recline by groups on the green grass, and they reclined in companies of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all, 
and they all ate and were satisfied. Now, we read that very quickly, but let's put it back in terms of what was going on. We've got 12,000 people. I suspect that the Lord was a very good host, that he didn't drag this meal out for six to eight or 20 hours, that he probably did it in two hours. Feeding 12,000 people in two hours is 6,000 an hour. That's 100 people every minute, two people every second, that the Lord is breaking bread every second, every minute, for two hours, plus the fish. What do you think was the response of the disciples as they saw this phenomenal miracle taking place? What was the response? Was it one of awe, of admiration, of just saying, praise God what this Jesus from Galilee can do? Praise God for this friend of ours who can do this wonderful thing. What, what was their response? It wasn't that. We'll see in a minute what it was. It went on, it says, and they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish, and there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. How many baskets? 12 baskets. Who got the baskets? You ever think about that? Let me suggest some names. Peter, James, John. I think perhaps each one of the disciples got a basket full of the scraps, the leftovers. Again, let me ask, what do you think the disciples were thinking as they were sitting there in the boat that they were about to enter? They were sitting there with a basket full of leftovers. After seeing this phenomenal miracle where this man, Jesus, fed 12,000 in two hours with five loaves and two fishes, what they should have been thinking, I, I would think, would be that perhaps when the Lord says, if you're not faithful in using the little thing, you're not going to get any more. That the little thing is important, including leftovers, the things we take for granted. But that's not what crossed their minds. In fact, at this point, most of us sort of stop. That's the end of the story. But that's not the end of the story. It continues in verse 45. And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the multitude away. And after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were frightened. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished. And here comes the kicker, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. That's bad, but listen to this. But their heart was hardened. That's worse. How can 12 disciples, seeing this man feed 12,000 people, with five loaves and two fishes, respond with a hardened heart. How can we explain that response? Let me suggest one possible explanation. It wasn't easy to be a disciple. It wasn't easy to forsake everything and leave it all and follow this man. It cost something. And I suspect there were days when they didn't have much to eat. 
And when they saw Christ display what he could do when he put his mind to it, if you will, they started thinking back to last Thursday when all they had was a loaf amongst the 13 of them. And they're probably asking themselves, if he could do this for 12,000 people with five loaves and two fishes, why is he intentionally making life difficult for us? Why is he holding out on us? Why has he been holding out on us? Why isn't he meeting our needs? The case of the hardened hearts. Now, how does that apply for today? What I find tragically so often in the church is a perspective of the hardened heart. As we look around us and we see issues, political, social, economic, in our society, as well as in the church, we sometimes and too often seem to be saying to God, why are you making things so hard for us? Why are you holding out on us? Why are you making things difficult? The case of the hardened heart. And that's a poor perspective because there has never been a time in world history, certainly no time in U.S. history, when Christians have greater opportunities to live out their faith than today. And if that's not the message you're getting from some evangelicals and fundamentalists on the tube and elsewhere, then it's because they have hardened hearts and they're trying to build the kingdom through economic power, through religious institutional power, and through political power. And those were the three temptations that, the Christ, that Christ rejected when the adversary said, why don't you build your kingdom by turning the stones to bread and take care of all of our economic needs? And the Lord says, no, that's man's way. That is not God's way then why don't you build your kingdom by organizing all the religious institutions and do a trick, a gimmick, jump off the temple, and they'll all follow you and organize the religious institutions. And Christ says, that's man's way, that's not God's way. And why don't you build your kingdom by just taking political power and just you and I expeditiously one time merge forces and I'll give it all to you politically. And the Lord says, no, that's... Not God's way, that's man's way. And when we try to build a kingdom by way of economic, political, and religious institutional power, we're going to have the fruit of a hardened heart. It never fails, because that is not God's agenda. It's not his way. What he wants us to be are servants in a servant role, salt and light, and sheep in a society where nobody wants to be the sheep, but everybody wants to be the wolf. See, we're called to be light, to be salt, and to be sheep. But to be sheep in a society where everyone wants to be wolf is a cost. And nobody wants to play that role, but that is the sign, the sacrificial lamb, that we as Christians have to live out in front of everybody. And if we don't live it out, the world will never see it in any other place. I'd like to go through some baskets full of religious liberties, of freedoms that God has given to us in his sovereign will that we enjoy today that we don't use. And I'm going to go through quickly a list of U.S. Supreme Court decisions to show you what that body has 
held time and again that we as Christians can do in terms of our religious faith. The Supreme Court, for instance, has held that the state is forbidden from from prescribing the appropriate form of worship. In other words, that's up to the local church to decide what is appropriate worship and not the governor or not the president, not the Congress, not the state legislature. That's a freedom we enjoy that is foreign to the majority of countries around the world today. The Supreme Court has declared that all parents have the primary responsibility for directing the education and spiritual nurture of their children. You won't find that freedom in many countries around the world. In this country, a local church could decide on Sunday night to start a Christian school on Monday morning without getting a license from the state. Oh, you say, well, what about all the school Christian school battles? Yes, there are issues, because what has happened for 140 years, the church, the evangelicals, fundamentalists, and the church generally in this country have been saying to the state that you are the superior and sole educator. You know how to do it best. So we've let them handle and take education as their monopoly for over a century. And when we seek then to take some of that back, there's going to be resistance because we've sent out a confusing signal for over 100 years. Or take home instruction. That's, that's an in thing now across the country with a lot of families. Name another industrialized, developed country in the world where you can opt for home instruction. You won't find it. And yet we have that freedom, that option in this country. But you say there are battles, there are court battles involved. Yes, again, when for 150 years you ignore that opportunity as a church, it's not confusing, it's not uh, a mystery to understand why the state says, wait a minute, what do you mean you're going to keep your children at home? And then you respond, well, the Bible dictates that we teach our children at home and the state asks, where was that Bible and that reading 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? When did you come up with that reading? So there is, but the Supreme Court has declared that we as parents have that primary responsibility, not the state. What about the public schools violating the religious convictions of school children? We hear horror stories about that going on. The fact of the matter is the Supreme Court has declared that the public schools cannot violate the spiritual convictions of children. A key case back in the middle of World War II, a group of Jehovah's Witness children, eight of them, refused to pledge the flag as part of the opening exercises. Now, if you want to do something unpopular, don't pledge the flag during World War II. The schools expelled the kids. They brought suit and they went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court in 1943 declared that there are more important things than nationalism in the middle of a war, and that one of those is religious convictions. Now you say, well, that was for Jehovah's Witnesses, yes, because usually the state will take on the unpopular groups, be it Bob Jones University or the Jehovah's Witnesses, be it Reverend Moon or the Krishnas, because it's easier to fight the battle against an unpopular group than against the Southern Baptists with 14 million members. You take on the little guys that nobody wants to support. But the rule for religious freedom is this, to treat others the way you yourself would want to be treated if you're a minority religion. And folks, if you think Christians are in the majority in this country, you're not reading the papers and the signs very well. We are the minority faith. And if we applaud 
the loss of religious liberties for other minorities, it will, as Christ predicts, eventually come back on ourselves. Religious liberty is not only for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. But that Jehovah's Witness case came in handy a couple years ago when a group of students up in Erie, Pennsylvania, in a senior lit class, were asked to read a book that they considered to be obscene, anti-Christian, and just violating their religious convictions. The high school, the instructor in the lit class said, read it or you don't pass the class. They went to the principal and the principal said, that's right, not only won't you pass this class, but as seniors you won't graduate unless you do that assignment. That was a pretty heavy price to pay for one assignment, 12 years into education. They went to the school board. The school board backed up the principal saying, you're not going to graduate unless you read that assignment. But at that point, six of the eight kids decided it wasn't worth fighting. They would read the assignment. But two stood up and said, we won't read it. They called us three days before graduation. We didn't have much time. But we prepared a complaint that was hand-delivered to the judge the next morning. And you know what case we relied upon in defending the right of these students not to have their religious convictions violated? We went back to 1943 and said, what's good enough for one minority religion is good enough for the Christian faith. All we want is not to be treated in a preferred manner, but to be treated equally. If Christians are treated equally in this country, we have no grounds for complaint. It's when we seek to be treated with a special preference that we run into problems, because that's not the way we want other religions to be treated, and we need to be careful that we don't violate the golden rule in this area. The judge looked at the complaint, and he said to the school board, you don't want this complaint filed. You let those kids graduate, pass the class, and not take a penalty. And they graduated. Should the public schools teach the faith? The U.S. Supreme Court 40 years ago said no. Who is to teach the faith to children? Be it evangelicalism, be it Catholicism, be it Judaism. Who is to teach the faith? Biblically, who is to teach it? The family and the church. The Supreme Court said that's right. However, even though we're not allowed and we shouldn't be teaching the faith in the public schools, it is very clear that we can live out the faith in the public schools. There's nothing as powerful as a living witness of a believer in a classroom situation. If you're going to public education, as I shared yesterday, I'd urge you to do it. The only way to transform the public schools in this country is not to abandon them, but for Christians to go in and teach in the public schools so that those kids have role models to look up to so that there can be salt and light. And how do you treat the children in the classroom if you become a public school teacher? This is the standard. You treat the children in the public school classroom the same way you would want your own child to be treated by a Mooney teacher. If you want restrictions on a Mooney teacher, please understand that a Jewish parent would want some restrictions on yourself. But if that child comes to you and asks you the question, what is it that makes you different? You have every freedom 
under our Constitution to respond to that child's request and inquiry. The point on all of this is let's not have hardened hearts and blame the Supreme Court, to blame politicians, to blame our leaders, to blame our media for what's going on. The problem in America today is not the secular humanist. The problem in America today is that Christians are secular. What has been lost in the church is a Christian mind. I would urge you to read Harry Blameyer's book, The Christian Mind, where he goes into this issue. We need a Christian perspective. We need to integrate and live out this book in our daily walk. There are other baskets full of opportunity that I'd like to share with you that are outside the public school arena. One of them is evangelism. Moody Monthly recently had an article by Warren Wearsby where Dr. Wearsby made the comment that in a survey, they discovered that only one out of 20 evangelicals had made a clear presentation of the gospel to their next-door neighbor. One out of 20. Now, whose fault is that? Is that the ACLU? Is that the National Education Association? Is that the U.S. Supreme Court? Is that the secular humanist? Who's holding us back? Let's not blame it on others. Let's not find a scapegoat. The truth is that we refuse to share the good news with our neighbors. It's not because the courts have done anything. It's not the others. Take it. Bible study and Bible memorization. In a book by Philip Yancey, Open Windows, he relates the story of Solzhenitsyn when he was serving time for having written a letter with a derogatory comment about Joseph Stalin. He spent many years in prison for that comment in his letter. While he was in prison, he wanted to get back to writing, but he knew that there was no word processing equipment available. There was no place to write. In fact, it was illegal to write while you were in prison. And so what he started doing was to commit a line at a time to memory. But he needed to have some system of memorization. So what he did initially was he would break matchsticks into tens, and every tenth line he would memorize, and that would be the key. He would memorize all ten lines, but the tenth one would be a key to lead him to the next ten. Well, that got a little bit complicated, and of course the guards would get a little suspicious about all those matchsticks, and so he noticed that the Lithuanian Catholics had a rosary, and they would pray the rosary with 40 beads on the rosary, and so he thought, my, that's a practical way to memorize scripture and or memorize what I'm writing. And so he decided to do one up better than the Lithuanians, and he made a chain of a hundred beads out of breadcrumbs, coloring every tenth bead. And as he stood in line, meal line, wherever he was standing in line, he would memorize and commit to memory one line at a time with what looked like he was praying the rosary. And the Lithuanians thought he was a very spiritual man because he had a hundred beads rather than just forty. When Solzhenitsyn got out of prison, he had committed 17,000 lines to memory in prison, in a concentration camp under hard labor. How many lines have you and I committed to memory in the last year of a book that most of us may have three, four, five, six copies of? See, the issue is not the other person. The issue is not 
the system. The issue is not them, the issue is us. What about the media? Never in history have evangelicals had access to getting the word out more effectively than today. Evangelicals are on more radio stations, more television stations, more hours of programming, printing more books than any other religion in the U.S., if not the world. And you know, if you want to do some gift giving, start giving books away. It's better to give than to lend, and it usually costs about the same. So <laughs> start buying books in bulk and giving them away. But don't give them for them to keep. Give them with the condition that they pass it on. That way you've, every gift has translated into two. My wife and I have done that in the last seven months, and we have distributed some 20,000 books to some 7,000 lawyers, to 2,000 pastors, to thousands of public school teachers, so that they can, in turn, give the books on. Got a letter back recently from one family that we sent the book Loving God to, Loving God by Chuck Colson. Turns out that this family had read that Jane Fonda had apparently found God, according to a newspaper story. So this family decided if she'd found God, she needed to hear a little bit more about him so she could start loving God. And so they sent on to Jane Fonda a copy of The Loving God that I'd given to the family. Another copy of Loving God wound up in behind the Iron Curtain to a pastor who's using it and passing it around. You never know when you take the printed page and you pass it on. You don't have to wait until you graduate from college to give gifts. As you find in Scripture in Philippians, it was the poorest of the poor that supported Paul, not the rich. And if you want to know how your needs will be met, not to support an affluent lifestyle, but if you want to know how your needs are met, the key is Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all your needs. But the precondition is that you are actively meeting the needs of other people. That's the only time that promise operates. The freedom in this country to choose your own profession. If you were in Romania, if you were in the Soviet Union, if you were in many countries, you could not be a Christian and a lawyer, a Christian and a doctor, a Christian and an engineer. There are not options available. There's a term, full-time Christian service, that you hear floating around. Let me tell you what full-time Christian service is. Full-time Christian service is being in God's will, period. I've met plumbers who are in full-time Christian service. I have met pastors who are not in full-time Christian service. The issue is not who pays your paycheck. The issue is whether or not you're in God's will. Therefore, public school teachers are in full-time Christian service. Lawyers are in full-time Christian service. Wherever you're at, if you're in God's will, that is full-time Christian service. And you have the freedom in this country to choose your profession. The freedom to write letters. You know how long it takes to write a note of encouragement? Five seconds and a 22-cent stamp. I get 2,000 letters a year. I remember the few that are words of encouragement. When Chaplain Richard Dick Halverson of the U.S. Senate, former pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church, wrote me a few months ago, a little personal letter, Sam, I pray for you daily by name. You know what that says? That says encouragement. You know, I framed that one. That's special. It didn't take long. He's a very busy man. He has a congregation of 6,000 people in the U.S. Senate, and yet he finds time every day to pray for me by name. 
A note of encouragement doesn't cost you anything except five seconds, ten seconds, and a stamp. I'd encourage you to do it. Even it doesn't have to be mailed off. You can even give a note of encouragement to your professor as long as the motive is right. And then finally, the issue of giving. Never in history has the church been wealthier, and never in history has the church been more selfish. You say, what are you talking about? In the U.S., people gave $32 billion last year to religion. Isn't that terrific? Isn't that generous? Show me another country where that kind of giving was taking place. And I said, I'm not impressed. Because in a $4 trillion economy, $32 billion is less than 1%. That means 99.2% went to non-religion and 0.8% went to religion. And in the richest country in, the, in history, that is not a good witness. And you say, well, that's because of all the secularists. Well, it's true that the average giving last year to the cause of religion and charities was 25 cents per day. But the average Methodist only gave 55 cents per day. The average Southern Baptist, 65 cents a day. The average Evangelical, less than a dollar a day. Comes out to about 1 to 2 percent. There is a problem there. And you say, well, I'm going to start giving when I get out of college. I don't have much to give now. I'd suggest you start looking around and see what you can give. My wife, Bobby, for many years, she, was, she bakes about five loaves of bread every two days. She bakes close to a thousand loaves a year. And out of every batch, she always gives at least one away to a neighbor. And you know what? When she starts sharing the good news about the living bread, the road has been paved and they're ready to listen. She also goes to local grocery stores, and she's done this for 15 years. And, you know, American are, Americans are very picky about produce. If it's slightly overripe, you throw it out. And loose grapes. I mean, who would buy loose grapes in the store? That's all thrown out. So Bob, what Bobby does, she delivers a loaf of bread on occasion to the produce manager. And then she walks out with 50 pounds of slightly overripe produce, packages it up and gives it to neighbors and friends for $1.50. You know what 10 pounds of raisins can be hydrated into, or grapes? 10 pounds of grape, raisins. At 25 cents for 10 pounds, that's better than sun-made. It doesn't take much. See, we have these opportunities, and the purpose of all of this is we have the opportunities in this country to live out our faith. What are we waiting for? The issue, again, is not... The system, the issue is not others. The issue is that we are not living and thinking Christianly. And finally, the use of our time. When was the last time you took time out to help somebody? And you say, I'm too busy. I'm a student. I don't have time to help. If you're too busy to help people when you're in college, you're too busy. Using time. Maybe there are shut-ins that need a visit. Maybe there are neighbors that need a lawn mowed. You mow the lawn, and maybe that will open up the door to share the great message of a Christ that gave his life for them.
The point of all this is that a sovereign God has given us unprecedented opportunities to live out our faith. We have freedom of religion. We have the freedom to live out our faith in a society like never before. And don't wait until you graduate from college to do it. I'm very encouraged as a board member to see what you're already doing, the inner city programs, the, the community programs, and the active involvement. The numbers are terrific, but the numbers still do not say that everybody's involved. Everyone should be involved. There are to be no exceptions, and I would encourage you to do it. Some time back, I was asked to speak at a university in southern Virginia, and to save the flight fare, I decided to drive down. It was going to take five hours. I was going to, supposed to be there at 11 o'clock, and I got up at 4. I was out the door at about 4.25. I noticed that the gas tank was on empty. I needed gasoline. I have an Exxon card, and I prefer to use the Exxon card to keep record of my expenditures. And there were two Exxon stations available for me to use. One was directly en route down Interstate 95. The other one was in the opposite direction. For some reason, at 4.30 that morning, I chose to go to the one in the opposite direction from going south. I went north, filled up and went down and spoke and came back that evening. The next morning, I opened up the Washington Post and in reading the front page of the local section, it related a story about an incident at 4.30 the previous morning at an Exxon station on Interstate 95, the one I chose not to go to, where four people had driven up. Their car stalled. They needed a vehicle. They killed the attendant of the Exxon station and were looking for some transportation. I would have driven up to that Exxon station at precisely the time when they needed the car. We have a sovereign God who has given us the gift of life, the gift of time. It's not ours by right, it is ours by His grace. And how we use it is up to us. The choice is ours. You may think that you've got another 40 or 50 years left. No. Good friend Paul DeCourt, just a few months ago, went to be with the Lord 45. A young woman in my Sunday school class, two weeks before Christmas, took ill on a Saturday before Christmas from a rare blood disease. Mother of three passed on. Another woman in my Sunday school class in January passed on, age 52. The gift of life, the gift of time, all in the hands of a sovereign God. We have a sovereign God in religion, a sovereign God who says, you have the freedom to live out your faith. It's up to you, and I hope you'll do it. Shall we pray? Our Father, we are indeed grateful for the gift of life, the gift of time, gifts that we take for granted. Help us, Lord, to 
see the baskets full of opportunities, the freedoms, the freedoms to live out our faith, the freedom to share the good news, the freedom to study, the freedom to prepare ourselves for ministry, for our professions, the freedom to be servants, the freedom to be ministers, to be parents, to be your witnesses, a sign pointing to you, the Lamb of God. Father, we again thank you that you are sovereign and that you have given us these gifts so that we can apply them for your glory. Help us to do it in the little things as well as the large. In that name we pray. Amen.